Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We continue with our latest series from the New Testament and the book of 2 Timothy. During the past weeks, we have begun to understand the importance of Paul carefully teaching his protege, Timothy, his place as a pastor of a church. And although this treatise from Paul is aimed directly to the young pastor, Timothy, we find it as an important section for our 21st century pastors to follow. The title of this lesson is The Call to the Gospel. This is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 12 to 18. This is the fifth lesson in this series. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our Believer's Bible Class meets every Sunday morning in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Our class opens at 9.15 a.m. following a short visiting time. There are over 135 people who attend and participate in the teaching each and every week and we are so happy to always have visitors to our class. We pray that you might visit us sometime in the future. Well, I see that Doug is at the podium, so let's go into the classroom, find a good seat, and open our Bible to Second Timothy. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We're going to start talking about what's been going on here with Timothy and Paul, and how he's trying to reach out to Timothy. But before we do, let's pray. Father, I thank you for clearing out the distractions. I thank you for how much you care about us. Now, Father, I pray that each one of us will see that it is time for us to become contagious. Contagious as to your love and forgiveness, as to your power and your peace. And I pray that you will help us to realize the need to fight back against the wickedness that's taking control of our nation. We can do that easily by turning hearts, and that's the specialty of your Holy Spirit, and I pray that he will be working through us to do exactly that. So help us to understand what you want us to see today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. And if you look in verse 11, you'll see... At the end, Paul says, for which I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and a teacher. Now, he lays out those three things. Did you notice he didn't say pastor? Is there a position of pastor? He could have, God didn't appoint him that. He appointed him as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Now, I want us to look at that little start of that verse, uh, for which, for which I was appointed. What is the for which apply to. It's to aid in the dissemination of the gospel. He says, I was appointed these positions that the gospel could get out and be shared. And that's what he wants to do. That's what he thinks God has called him to do. So in the next verse, chapter 1, verse 12, he says this to Timothy, for this reason, what is the reason that I'm about disseminating the gospel? For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, I want you to look for a second. I maybe have marked a couple of words on there. Guard. I want you to see that. I'm convinced that he is able to guard. That is a military term, and it can be used in two different ways. One way is the concept of a bodyguard. In other words, a group of men who are responsible for protecting a certain a certain person, and they are responsible for guarding that. In addition to that, it can be used for a, a military exercise to protect a particular place or location. I can remember 
as I used to, when I studied the war for Southern independence, there was a guy named Stonewall Jackson. And when he and his men protected a place, nobody could get it. He stood like a stone wall, and nobody, that's how he got his name. Some of you aren't familiar with the War for Southern Independence. It's, it's the same thing as the War of Northern Aggression. You're not familiar with that. <laughs> but I saw some blank looks on your face. But that's what that term means, to guard. Now, Paul is using that in this verse to say what? what it, first of all, who is doing the guarding in this verse? The Lord God is. What is he in guarding? What has, Tim, what has Paul entrusted to him? His life. Exactly right, his life. He said, he is guarding. Can you think of anyone else who you would want to guard you other than that person, the Lord God Almighty? Can anyone, I mean, you can break through Stonewall much easier than you can break through the Lord God Almighty. And so the concept is, yeah, I may suffer some things, but I'm not going to be ashamed. This is the one who's guarding me. The only one who gets through is the one he allows to get through. Now, I want you to keep that word guard in mind. We're going to come back and look at it again in just a second. So we go on and we see that Paul recognized he's going to suffer, but he is not ashamed of who and what he is and what he's doing. And he wants Timothy to be the same way. And he wants you to be the same way, not to be ashamed. So we come to a key verse here in verse 13 that I want you to see, and we're going to break it down. I call it the standard, the standard. Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul now admonishes, this is an order, uh, an imperative to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words. What does this word retain mean? It's the Greek word echo, and echo means to, the, or carries the idea of holding on to and not letting go of something. You retain it. You won't let go. It also carries with it a connotation, though, of using it over and over and over again. You retain it so that you can use it consistently. Now, what is it that we are going to retain. This is important to know, and I want us to, to see this concept here as he's telling us to retain, and the word next is standard. We're to retain the standard. Now, what does it mean, the standard? Bill, let me ask you a question. You have a, in your home somewhere, and I have seen your beautiful woodworking. Do you ever have a pattern that you have made, and you keep that pattern so that you can replicate it over and over, and it'll always be the same? A template. Exactly. That's the word that I'm going to use here in just a second. And I sometimes, for example, you're going to make a table. Most table have, a small table may have how many legs? Four. So you tape four pieces of lumber together, you put the template on, on top, and you trace it out, and then you run it through the bandsaw of those four pieces at a time. All are going to be exactly the same. That's the purpose of a template or a pattern. Now, this word standard could also mean like an architectural drawing. So if you had one architectural drawing and you're going to build seven houses using that drawing, you would hopefully do them all the same because you're following the pattern of that drawing. To me, a template is the best concept, and it's there to be used over and over and over. So if we are to retain this template, don't get rid of it, save it, because you're going to use it over and over, Paul is saying. What is it a template for or of? Sound words. Now, the word word here, which is in plural, is a word that you're familiar with. You've heard before, logos, and it means a message. It means a, a concept that you are describing, logos, in most of the instances. You remember, for example, uh, it's referred to Jesus in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. He is the word. Now, but it has this word sound. 
At first, somebody would say, why are we talking about sounds and words together? Aren't they really the same thing? But it's not the meaning of a sound that you hear. It has to do with the quality of the word. And so if you were to look at this word sound in the Greek, you would find that it's hugianio, and hugianio means to be sound or to be well, to be in good health in its normal meaning. It also has a metaphorical meaning of Christians whose opinions are free from the mixture of error. Now, if you take that template and you put it on those four pieces of lumber and you cut them all at the same time, what will you for certain know? They're all going to be the same. In the same concept, he's saying, you need to take the sound words and be able to use them over and over again and not vary, not allow error to come in. You know, if you were cutting those four legs and you did them one at a time and you were out there in your garage cutting them and your wife came to the door, hey, I need you to, you know, that might mess up the leg. Maybe not, but maybe so. So what you've got to do is understand it is of utmost importance in this word. This is the concept he's saying. You must do this. That's why retain is in the imperative mood. You need to have it always the same. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. And I want you to see where we're going here. You look at the sound words and it says, where did, it, where did he get these sound words? Well, he, he got the sound words from Paul, but where did Paul get them? Paul got them, the sound words, have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Where did Paul get his message? Did he spend three years with Peter, James, and John while Jesus was building his disciples? No, no. no he didn't. He met Jesus for the first time on the road to Damascus, right? He really, though, didn't get much more on Damascus Road other than his salvation. Yes, and blindness. I would consider that a negative as according to a positive. But it is a fact. Now, where did he learn these things? I'm going to tell you there's two places where he learned them. The first one was on Mount Horeb. Do you remember that? In Galatians, it talks about how long did he spend on Mount Horeb? Three years. Ah, the three years required to be a disciple and apostle. Now, did he ever have another meeting with Jesus? In 2 Corinthians, I think it is, the Lord God took Paul up into heaven and he spent time in the very throne room of God, just like Isaiah did. Wow. He, did he tell us what all was told to him? He said, no, I can't tell you those things. But do you think he got the message? And he is passing this message on to Timothy, but he says, you can't change it at all. Do we need to worry about that today? Yeah. Let me give you some examples here. Let's go to the next slide. I think it's John three sixteen. Look at these. Now I have it first there for you in the King James. You notice it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the New American Standard, it has only begotten. And the New King James, it has only begotten. Now, let's go back up to King James. What does it mean to be only begotten? No, you're missing it. It means they are the biological son of God. You know, who, who was his father biologically? God Almighty, along with his mother Mary. He is the only biological son. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for this reason. Chris, are you a son of God? Yeah, he is. Yeah. I'm a son of God. What does it say? Don, are you? Uh, you better believe it. Now. Not only that, uh, I'm Jewish. So that I know you're a Malachite. Oh. <laughs> now, let's go back. Think about this a second. What does it say in John 1.12? But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God. So you're either a daughter or a son. Are you a biological child of God? So you are adopted, just like Jesus was with his father Joseph, you see, adopted. So 
to say you're the only, I can't say I'm the only begotten, but I can say I'm a child of God. Now, have people tried to destroy that concept of the only begotten? Well, let's look. I hate to embarrass anybody here, but I call it like I see it. NIV, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, wait, is Jesus his only son? No, we all are, are his children. I'm his son. You're his daughter. You're his son. NLT, one and only son. ESV, only son. That's happening, and that's an easy one to find. You see, when I look at a new translation, I always look, that's the first verse I look at. And then I look at Titus 3, 5. And then I look at Genesis uh, 6, 1 through 4. And a couple other passages that I have to check things. Yes? Can I ask you, when, when he says, he doesn't say that you're my only son. He says, only begotten. How do you conceive of begotten? Begotten? Do you remember chapter 5 of Genesis where it says, and Adam begat... Uh, and then, and all of this begatting going on? Yes. So the, I'm going to be rather explicit. I don't, I hope it doesn't offend anybody. The spermatozoa that went into the ovum that was in Mary's womb was God's. That's what I mean. He did. He specially made it. So that he could create that body which was going to be filled completely with God and yet be completely human in the hypostatic union. A you. Never before, never since. But that's why he's the only begotten son of God. No others. Now, I'm convinced that there will be a counterfeit coming one day soon if he's not already here. And he will appear to be maybe even an only begotten because it could be that his father... Is Satan. It could be. So anyway, I want you to think about that. that. I don't want us to get off on that. But I want you to know. notice in this verse, verse 13, Paul adds, do this in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Here he speaks of faith built into us by the sanctification process. Is, let me ask you something. Frank, do you know this? If you have built your muscle up. Let's say you were an athlete in high school and you built your muscles up and let's talk about biceps. But then after that, for the next four years, you didn't do any working out or anything. Does that muscle remain like you had it right at the end of high school? It's going to atrophy. Faith is exactly the same way. The case is that your faith will atrophy if you don't exercise it. If you exercise it, what will happen to your faith? It grows. It becomes stronger. It's just like a muscle. And so he is saying that here, this faith that is built by the sanctification process, that is becoming more Christ-like, and the love for others that God instills in our hearts so that we have an inner desire to share our faith with them. But this phrase also refers back the admonition to retain the purity of the message. We must become strong in our faith for the purpose of maintaining the purity of the message. And we retain or hold fast by and through that faith and love in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to go another step. In verse 14, he starts off with this word again, guard. We're not going to go back. We're just going to, going to use this. Guard. You remember what we talked about, the word guard, military term, either to a person or a place. All right? Uh, or a thing that you're going to guard. You know, in my research, I, I did a quick down and dirty. They say that the most valuable piece of art in the world is the Mona Lisa. And that you really can't put a value on it. Some of you have been to the Louvre. You've even seen it. I'm not sure that you're looking at the real Mona Lisa when you see it. It may be a very, very good copy because they don't want any idiots to try to come in there and deface it or do the other things that some fools try to do. Misguided persons, I guess, you know. We're instructed to guard, but what? What are we supposed to guard? 
It was Paul's life that God was guarding in, in, in verse 12. But here in verse 14, it's something different. Guard through the Holy Spirit which indwells with you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So who now is to do the guarding? We are. How are we to get empowered to do that guarding? From the Holy Spirit. That's right. Now, I want you to look at this word through just a second. Let's go back. This is a little word. It's dia. It's a preposition. And you think, okay, this is just a transitional word. Doug, go on. Don't spend any time on this. Oh, no. If you look at it carefully in the Greek, it is what's called genitive of means or genitive of instrumentality. Now, why is that important to know? Have you ever heard of the verse, for by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. There is someone who has told you, and here I'm fixing to get myself in trouble, but you know, someone who's told you, that that verse indicates that we are saved solely by grace. The faith is just a byproduct. No. It is the means or the instrument of our salvation. Here, this, what the Holy Spirit is going to do is the means or the instrument for our guarding. And so we need to see that. We cannot guard but for the means we have of guarding. Now, Bob, what would happen, have you ever been, when you were a Marine, were you ever on guard duty? What would have happened if your commanding officer had gone out there when you were on guard duty, and he said, where's your, well, where's your weapon? Oh, well, I didn't think I'd need it. It would not have been good, would it? No. You see, we're the guard, but the Holy Spirit is the weapon. That we are using to guard whatever he's telling us to guard. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But I want you to see the importance of that word dia. So the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now, Paul is seeming to make a distinction here about the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Well, didn't the Holy Spirit dwell in King David? Didn't he dwell in Elijah? Didn't he dwell in Abraham and Moses? Answer is no. And you say, well, wait, didn't the Holy Spirit operate in their lives? Yes, he did. Jesus gave us a perfect explanation of this that I want you to see. It's over there in uh, John chapter 14, verse 16. Look at this. I will ask the Father, Jesus said, and he will give you another helper. Another helper. Jesus was the helper to start with. And now the Holy Spirit is the second helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. How do you know him? Because he abides with you. He abides with you. What is that? That's Old Testament time. When does the Old Testament end? Did Old Testament times end? Pentecost. Pentecost, the birth of the church. That's when the church age starts. Then something changed. See what Jesus is saying? Because he abides with you, but will be in you. You see that? Now the Holy Spirit lives in you. Does that mean he goes everywhere with you? What if you walk into a topless bar? Is the Holy Spirit going in there with you? How do you think he feels about that? What if you were sitting there and you're starting to hear uh, from this group you're talking to on the phone of a great deal of just gossip? Is the Holy Spirit listening? How do you think he feels about that? Not good. What if you're driving in your car and you're all alone and somebody near you does something really idiotic? And you start yelling at them, even though they can't hear you. Can the Holy Spirit hear you? Because he's there inside the car with you. you. Now we're getting too close to home, so we need to move on. Now, let's look on to the rest of that verse there in, in verse uh, uh, 14. Because I want us to see this concept of the treasure. The treasure. Now, if you had a New American Standard... 
they have a position on translating where they think they will pick the best words. But if there's an alternate word or a meaning that is straight from the Greek but is difficult to put into the English, they will come in and they will put a footnote by it. And you will see the, in verse 14 in the New American Standard, it says literally a good deposit. This treasure is a good deposit. Now, some of us now understand something. When you say a good deposit, that's, we think of a real estate sale, right? Don, if somebody came to you and said, I know you own some property here and there, and they say they want to buy this piece of property from you, and you tell them, well, my price is $2.5 million for this piece of property. And they say, good, we'll buy it. Here's the contract. And you look at the contract, and the earnest money deposit is $25. (laughs) What are you going to do? You're going to take it, huh? You really are an Amalekite, aren't you? All right, I understand now. But $25? They're not going to do it. They're just trying to flip it. I could buy my wife a carton of Coke Zero. Boy, will that pay off. Maybe he's wiser than all of us. I don't know. I would never buy my wife a carton of Coke Zero because of what she would think that the reason I was getting that for her for was. But you do what you want. Now, what is the treasure? What is the good deposit? It's the gospel message that God gave to Paul, that Paul gave to Timothy, and he says, you need to guard that. Don't let someone start telling you that Jesus is just the one and only Son of God. Don't let someone tell you that, well... We don't know for sure whether he rose from the dead because we have no real evidence about that. Don't let someone, well, there's so many things that have crept into the scripture you can't really rely on. You don't know for sure what's inspired and what's not. Uh Uh-uh. You are responsible for guarding it. Now, who's the weapon to guard that treasure? The Holy Spirit. Now, Bob, let me come back to you. Back in the Marines, did they issue you a rifle? What kind? All right. Let's take the, just for example, the the M1 Grand that they issued to you. Now, it has a little bit more kick than the other two, right? And did you learn how to take it apart? Did you learn how to clean it? Did you learn how to put it back together? Where there's some Marines who could do that with their eyes covered. And not only did you learn how to care for it, you also learned how to use it. Can you, the first time you go into the Marines, and if you've never shot a weapon before, and you take that gun out to the range, do you know what you're doing? Yeah, but you'd shot a weapon before, right? So you've got to learn how to use that weapon. If you're going to guard the treasure, even though you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, are you going to have to learn how to do that? You're going to have to get prepared. Why? Because Paul is trying to tell us, you're at war. And we're at war. We've got to use, learn how to use our weapon. Just because you have one of these doesn't mean you can use it. Just because you have an M1 Garand doesn't mean you know how to shoot it and take care of it. I mean, the last thing you want to do is be in a firefight and it jams because you haven't cleaned it. The same thing is true. The last thing you want to do is be in a firefight and forgot all the passages that you've memorized or tried to memorize. You need to have knowledge of how to use your weapon. That's what he's saying. Guard. Will the Holy Spirit teach you those things? Yes, if you give him a chance. How much time do you spend with the Holy Spirit on a week? Ask yourself that. That is important to know. And so that is what he's trying to tell him. Now... Let's look at the word treasure again. Treasure indicates value, right? Value. How do you determine the value of something generically? What is the value measured by? Well, let me give you some suggestions. One way of determining value is that the item or the concept being considered what it can do or accomplish. What you can do or accomplish with it. You know, you can have two rifles. One's a musket. Now, one's an M1 Grand. Is there a difference in value? 
especially if you're going to war. Secondly, value can come from the uniqueness of an item or, or its exclusivity. The uniqueness of an item. I mean, there's only one David carved by Michelangelo. It is unique. And therefore, because of that uniqueness and beauty, its, its value is inestimable. You can also determine value by the inability to recreate or to bring it about. And you can finally value something affected by a known expiration time. It's not going to be with us any longer, for example. If all of us, all of a sudden, were caught Ebola in this room, and they say we've got one vial of antidote, and this vial will go bad in three days. You begin to see the value of that vial? Okay. I'm not asking for bidding because I know what Don will do, so we're not going to get into that. Now let's look at this treasure he's talking about. It is exclusive in that there is nothing that can compare to it or substitute for the gospel. It is unique in that it can do what nothing else can do. It is what it can accomplish cannot be valued. What is the value of eternity with God versus eternity away from God in hell forever? Everything. Everything. And it can be valued. And finally, does it have an expiration date? The gospel. Actually, the time of the second coming. People can be saved during the tribulation. You're probably going to have to pay for it with your head. But you can be saved. And there will be lots of people saved. And in fact, they'll be saying, how long are you going to wait to do something to avenge our deaths? as they'll speak to Jesus and say that from under the throne. But his time will come, and he is going to do that, and we need to understand the value. Now, let's go on, because Paul said, this gospel has been entrusted to you. Entrusted. I want you to see that. I wanted to say that the Bible, even because when I evangelize, I even say for a non-believer, they can read the Bible and find good, because it's says that every word uh, does not return void. Yes, that's in Isaiah, and it will not. And there are people who have been saved, who I know, just by reading the Bible. But Paul says, we need, they need to, how beautiful are the feet of those who have heard the message explained to them. The guy who is the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, he was reading the gospel in Isaiah 53, but he didn't really understand it. So God took Philip from here, and actually the word is harpazio, raptured him, and put him right there, and he explained it, and then he harpazioed him again and took him back to the revival that was going on in Samaria. But that's, God makes those provisions, and we need to understand that he will do that. Now, when you entrust something, you, it, they don't uh, obtain ownership of it. They're like a trustee or a steward. The gospel doesn't belong to us. It is given to us to take care of and to utilize as the master has instructed us. The Being a trustee in our law carries the highest duty there is, fiduciary duty. Uh, there was a case in Dallas County where a well-known New York banking establishment was sued for breach of fiduciary duty, and they were overseeing an estate that was rather large. They hit them for, because they breached over and over and over their fiduciary duty, the Dallas County jury said the damages, actual damages are $2 billion, and the punitive damages, because we want to punish you for what you did, is $4 billion. And J.P. Morgan Chase now looking at $6 billion. I'm sorry that I was not the attorney who was involved in... But anyway, fiduciary duty is important. And if you work for J.P. Morgan Chase, I'm sorry to bring that up. But you look at this thing, and this is an important duty that we have. When Jesus comes back, will he not ask us, what have you done with this treasure that I have entrusted to you? He will. And I can think of times in my life 
when he would say, Doug, why did you wilt on me there? And why did you wilt on me there? And I will have to answer. You'll have to answer too. Let's go to verse 15. Because Paul is now going to give some examples of this kind of thing. In verse 15, you are aware of the fact, he tells Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among them Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, what I think Paul is speaking in hyperbole here, because Timothy's in Asia and he hasn't turned yet, but it feels like, you remember, all Asia heard the word of God, according to Paul. We saw that earlier. And now he's saying they all are turning away. They have refused to support me. They are saying it's gotten too hot in the kitchen. We're getting out. And he felt deserted by these men and others. Now, do we know anything about Phygelus and Hermogenes? I thought we should know all kinds of things. We ought to be able to find it. And I searched and searched and searched some more. Nothing. I looked at works by men who, who should have known. Weist should have known. No. Ryrie should have known. They all said, we don't know. What we do know is that Paul knew those men, and Timothy knew those men, and they were the perfect example of this. And I wanted you to see that. And he says, these guys have turned on me. And we need to understand something here. Question, John. I was reading something uh, the other day. I don't think so, John, because these are men that were living there at this time that turned on Paul. So, and if they were Pharaoh's magicians, they wouldn't have been people who were turning. They were already on the wrong side. So uh, just that would be my initial thought on that matter. There's some people who say, you know, I can't really believe Paul did this. He shouldn't have just pointed out by name these people. And... They say that because there are times when we should point out names. And they would say, no, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. And they would have some reasons why you shouldn't do that. And we need to be aware of that, those reasons. Number one, they will say, you shouldn't do that. Well, Paul can do it, but not you. You're not an apostle. You're not a preacher. You're not uh, someone who has the gift of healing and of miracles, and you haven't spent uh, three years with Jesus. You shouldn't do it. And yet, what does Paul say to us? You do as I do. Now, I would never say that because I don't think that would be good. But Paul tells Timothy, do what I do. He's telling us, do what I do. He pointed them out because he was knowing they were failing the gospel. And if we need to point them out, point them out. People get mad at me. I have a number of books on my shelf that are written by John MacArthur. And many of them are very good. But John MacArthur believes in lordship salvation. And I do not. And that is contrary to the scripture. He says if you... You, may, you ask him to be your Savior and your Lord. And if you don't make him your Lord, you're not saved. It's about works. No, faith and faith alone is what brings salvation. Amen. Now, so yes, we should point out things like that, number one. Number two, they say, oh, don't touch the Lord's anointed. That man's preacher or pastor out there, he's anointed by God. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Well, where are they getting that from? That's what David said. Think of the context. They're not talking about pastors or people who are talking about misstating God's doctrines. They're talking about kings. And what were they trying to do? The people were telling David, kill him. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointing. I'm not going to kill him. So that doesn't pass mustard. Now, a third thing, and then I'm going to answer your question or, or let you ask it, see if I can answer it. A third thing they're going to say is, well, have you gone to this person privately? And then if they said, no, did you bring some witnesses with you? And that doesn't apply at all. That is for a private wrong done to you by someone else. It's not pointing out 
a doctrinal heresy that's being spread throughout the church. It's different. It's not the same. You see, John, that's right. I should have remembered. Thank you for reminding me of that. Did you hear her? You can get it from Dawn afterwards, the verse that it's Janice and Jambres who were the magicians of 2 Timothy. All right, good. Now, you say, we supposed to, Paul said, do what I do. Did Paul ever really confront personally someone who was in the church but was taking the wrong doctrinal stand? Yes. Well, let's look at that. Would you suggest, Don, do we look in Galatians? All right, well, let's turn. How about the second chapter, verse 11? All right. Then when Cephas, that's Peter, that's the Hebrew word for rock, Cephas. Then when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to coming, from the coming of certain men from James, that would be the church in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away. Is, is he naming names? But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to, the C, to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So he confronted Peter. Peter tended to make mistakes from time to time. We're not all perfect because we're not Jesus. We're only adopted sons. We're not only begotten sons. And so that brings us now to a good example, though, found in verse 16 of chapter 1. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when I was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant him to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered in Ephesus. So you have these three, Phygelus, Hermogenes, and Anisiphorus, who are compared by Paul, the good and the bad. And so Paul wants his young protege, with his urging, to choose wisely, keeping his eyes on the long term and the growth of the church from generation to generation. Now, that Paul is getting across. What is Paul in the church? He was a major leader in the church. What does he want Timothy to be? A major leader in the church and to be training major leaders. And so what he says sometimes, there's a church called Saddleback. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. And there's another one. I can't remember the name of it. It's up in Chicago area. Willow, Willow Creek. They are going to be perfect examples of what I'm going to be talking about here. And I want you to see it so we can understand it. You see, Paul, even at the end of his life, is trying to build these principles of leadership into Timothy and those who follow him. And one of the more important principles that he has is leaders should not be about gathering followers but instead developing future leaders. Now, if he wanted to be, who could have been the greatest evangelist to ever live? Jesus. Did Jesus go all over the world evangelizing people? Did he even leave Israel? What did he do? He spent his life building into 12 and then ejecting one and substituting the apostle Paul. And do likewise. Right. That's the plan. So, let's talk. Some people would say, well, wait. Gathering followers versus developing leaders, is that really a difference without a distinction? Or isn't that really the same thing? And the answer to that is no. And we're going to look at like six principles real quick here before we finish. Leaders who gather followers need to be needed while leaders who develop new leaders want to be succeeded. That is one of the major differences. Many who desire to lead followers do so because it builds their own self-worth. They feel like they're indispensable. 
On the contrary, leaders who seek to build future leaders will work to make their leadership dispensable. I want to be replaced. I want to be replaced. Paul says, I need to be replaced by you, Timothy. He doesn't want to go on forever. They don't want new leaders. They just want followers. If you were to look at John chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, you'll see that during the Feast of the Passover, a number of people believe, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Why? Because he was not about being the worldwide evangelist. He was about building a core of new leaders to take his place when he had to leave. Second key principle here. Leaders who gather followers focus on people's weaknesses, while leaders who develop new leaders focus on their strength. You see, ineffective leaders focus on followers' weaknesses. Pastors who will preach to the weaknesses of people as opposed to trying to build their strengths. We need to be about building the strengths. Many times they don't understand how development encouragement works. Strong leaders focus on people's strengths because that is the key to developing leaders. Those strengths being built up. Leaders who follow, who focus on or gather followers focus on the bottom 20%, while leaders who develop new leaders focus on the top 20%. Great leaders focus on the best of their followers, not those, those who have potential to be leaders. Jesus did this. Think about this a second. How many people did he pick? Just 12. Did he also build in even more to a smaller group in that group of 12? to the inner circle, right? That's what he was about. Building leaders, not growing followers. He didn't care whether they followed him or not. Now, leaders of followers tend to focus on those who take but give little in return. That's not what he wants. Those are those who follow remain uncommitted to anything but following. He wants committed people. Leaders who gather followers treat everyone the same, while leaders who develop new leaders treat everyone as individuals. Individuals. When Paul would depart on a missionary journey, he didn't take everyone with him. Instead, he took a chosen few who he would spend time developing and allowing them to observe what he was doing, how he was building churches and doing this. He chose wisely who he would give the opportunity to oversee the churches that he planted. That was all what he was doing. Leaders who gather followers spend their time with their followers, while leaders who develop new leaders invest their time in new leaders. Spending time versus investing time. There is a difference. Paul considered the time he spent with men like Timothy or Titus or Luke to be an investment. He began investing in a man named John Mark, but then determined such was not a wise investment and discontinued his efforts with John Mark. Every believer should be considering how they can invest their time in others, not just spend it. Even among his disciples, Jesus had an inner circle. Now, the next one, leaders who gather followers ask for little commitment. Leaders who develop new leaders ask for greater commitment. Was Jesus about asking for commitment? Absolutely. A follower, following a leader, takes little commitment. Becoming a leader takes much more. The responsibility that comes with leadership demands time, sacrifice, and service. Commitment. Leaders who gather followers impact their generation. That is true. But leaders who develop new leaders impact their generation, together with future generations. People who are merely followers, no matter how ardent, only impact those their lives personally touch. So we ask these questions at the end here. Did did Christ Jesus, when he came to the earth, seek to evangelize the entire world himself, or did he seek to develop a band of brothers who could spread out over the whole globe, bringing the gospel message to all? That's what he did. That was Paul's mission, developing leaders, not merely followers. And that should be ours. You should ask yourself the question, who have I invested my time in?
That's a question you should answer. Who have I invested my time in? How you answer that. Now, that's the question you should ask yourself. The question you should ask God, who should I invest my time in? Do you think he will say, I'm not going to tell you. You're just going to have to figure that out on your own. No, he's not. He'll be very pleased when you ask that question. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we could spend together today. And thank you for loving us the way that you do. Help us, Father, to understand we're not about building followers. We're about investing our time in future leaders, raising the leaders of the next generation, helping them to grow. Help us, Father, to understand a lot of that can be done by intercession. And help us to understand the importance of prayer and the fact that we are in a fight. And those who are in a fight and don't believe they're in a fight or act like they're not in a fight get beaten up. Help us to understand that's what's happened to the church. We've been beaten up badly. It's time to get off the campus canvas and to start fighting back with the weapons that you have given us. Guarding the gospel, asking for you to guard us, and investing in those who you can use after we're gone. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.